0: Thank you, Leland. I'm super excited to have you join the Model Breakers podcast. It's so awesome. Uh, When I learned your story over the phone, it was very fascinating, and I can't wait to introduce you to our audience.
1: Thanks, Charlene. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and I think there's so many interesting things, doing magic, skydiving, coaching, creating, but I want to learn more about something that's really scary to me. At least I've personally never did skydiving before so we'd we'll love to learn more about how you got started and if there's any interesting story with that that you would love to share.
1: <laughs> sure happy to share so I guess I did my first uh, skydive back my freshman year of college and it was sort of one of those things where it, you know we were all out and partying and it was like I want to go skydiving and I've never been yeah and so like 15 people like raised their hands you know and
0: you went to I, Brown, right?
1: Yeah. You yeah. Went to Brown.
0: Nice. It's like, I, yeah, I know it's crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think that a lot of people thought they were into it and they didn't think that I was serious. But the next morning, I picked up the phone and I made a reservation for later that weekend. And uh, maybe like of the 15, maybe like four people actually showed up. And like,
0: um, that's about uh, right. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so we had a great time. And I just remember from that first jump, the yes, the exhilaration and the freedom. I remember coming down from the skydive and just thinking to myself, wow, that was amazing. I could do that
0: again. But what made you want to sign up for that or organize that?
1: I think it was sort of like the bucket list thing, you Mm. know, where it's something that I'd always wanted to try. I mean, I used to travel a lot when I was a kid because I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And every time that we would fly, I, I would always look outside the window of the plane and I'd see these big puffy clouds. And I would think to myself, I want to be out there. I want to play and dance in the clouds.
0: Wow. And, and when you really did that, how, how tall was that the, the skydive? Probably
1: about 14 or 15,000 feet. It seems like everything else, houses and cars and people are super, super tiny ants. And there's wow. this giant space of air. And when you're up that high, like one of my favorite things to do is to look out at the horizon you can see the curvature of the earth on the horizon. And it's just this surreal feeling, almost like when you stand and like look at a huge valley or a vast sky, there's this feeling of feeling really small and also very connected to everything else, so.
0: Very small, very connected. Was there any fear or it was just acceleration?
1: Oh, definitely fear. Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) I think that that's sort of one of the common misconceptions. So, I mean, I've, I've been in the sport for about 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, Leland, you must be fearless. Like, you yeah, have got no fears of jumping. Not true at all. There's definitely fear. Every time that I jump, the survival part of my brain is going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> you could die, yeah. Yeah, like you could die. And it's, it's sort of being with that fear and feeling it and doing it anyway that I think is the key and also one of the lessons that I've learned from kind of uh,
0: how does that fear make you feel
1: well let me sort of like, just like tap into it for a second because it's been like a year since I've gone um and I'm actually thinking about going tomorrow for the first time in a year because I wow. miss it so much right it's like a part of me um I mean I can feel my heart rate increasing a little bit right I can feel my palms sweating there's this feeling of like, like a little bit of shakiness of like what are we doing right because humans weren't meant to fly like we we yeah, invented airplanes not. and then we invented ways to jump out of airplanes safely and survive and do it again. So it's right. this super trippy, like, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really scary. And I think also at the same time, past that fear, there's so much to be gained in terms of letting go of control and being free and flying, like being with your friends in the air. And
0: I, I love, I love how you said that. Cause I feel like a lot of times when we're uh, doing coaching or like helping others, people assume that you will be fearless. But I think it's almost like fearful. Like it's it's not not having fear. It's more about feeling it entirely. But as you said, still going ahead anyways because you know the growth. You know the letting go. You know the presence is so much more rewarding than not trying. Right. I
1: love that. So true. Right. I mean, I think it sort of connects us to being human. And I think that being human is having fears, like whether they're rational or not, and how like what our relationship is to that fear and how we either let it stop us or not. I mean, fear generally helps, right? Like helps to protect us. That's how we sort of evolved biologically. So it's there for a reason or like it has been, but how do we dance with it now differently so that it doesn't hold us back from things like publishing writing or things like, asking someone out or, you know, like doing something scary.
0: If you could pull back to uh, one moment in life, besides skydiving, what's the last scariest things you have done?
1: Definitely writing every week, which I started doing this year and and sort of like writing publicly, I would say. Um, so and and kinda, what does,
0: tell, tell us more about the fear.
1: Well, so... I used to do a lot of magic when I was a kid. Um, I learned it from my dad and I did it for maybe 15 or 20 years. And you know, it's like as a hobby. And like one of the key lessons that I, I learned in that practice that I'm unlearning now is this idea of like, you want to practice, practice, practice in private until it's good enough to then finally show it in public.
0: Right. right?
1: Honing your craft until it's perfect. And then you can finally sort of reveal it to the world. And for me, writing is an exercise in being willing to share thoughts out in the world that aren't fully baked, that aren't perfect, where I feel like I, I could have done more research. I'm afraid of being judged. And so, yeah. How long, a, how
0: long did it take you to publish your first writing in public?
1: How long, like, from the first sort of commitment of saying I'm going to do it? Right. Or,
0: or like when you, or I guess the first... Inclination to want to write right the first wanting. how long does it take for turning that wanting into something like a final product or a final drafted product out there.
1: That's a great question, I I think, for me, um, I've been thinking about writing for a while months and then one idea that a friend gave me which i'll talk about in a second was sort of a key that unlocked it and once they had unlocked it, it was like a week from saying, all right, uh, now I'm going to do this writing thing in public. And then a week later, I was on it. Because she challenged me to do it.
0: What did your friend say?
1: So I've had this belief that in order to write in public, you have to be some kind of authority or expert figure. right? And she said to me, Leland, instead of trying to be an expert on something, because I'm not. I haven't done something for 30 years. I'm not an expert. I mean, I consider myself a student of so many things and I I love the learning process and I'm constantly learning, evolving. So how am I supposed to write definitively about any topic as an expert? Mm -hmm. So Leland, instead of that, why don't you write your story and just write about what's working for you, what you're struggling with, sharing your journey along the way and what your learnings and insights are. That was it. That was the core of the idea. And that was like, holy crap. That's amazing because it just took all the pressure off of having to figure things out. And instead, I could ask questions and almost like involve my reader in this is me, warts and all. And I've got questions, more questions than answers. And that has been such a good sort of guiding light to help me to get more out there in the world in terms of writing.
0: Another way to look at it, since you're writing about your story, you are sort of the only authority to say what is right or wrong, (laughs) right? So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, it's all sort of like through the lens of Leland. Right. Anyway. And
0: only you can call that, that, make the call. And, but you said it's still scary. It's one of the scariest yeah. things that you're doing week over week, right? Yeah. How has, has that fear changed since you first published or is it the same? Cause you, I usually, uh, for me, it's changing every single time. So I was curious about how you feel.
1: I think, Every time I hit the publish button, it really, really feels amazing. Because every week I get to dance with those voices in my head that are afraid, that think that I'm not good enough, that, that are worried about being judged. And so every time that I'm about to publish, they all come back and I'm like, oh yeah, it's you, it's you. Great, oh yeah, yeah, right, right, right. I'm hearing all the same things. But I think I am getting a little bit better about saying, okay, I hear you, but I'm gonna hit publish anyway. And when I do, it's like a vote, I think it was like James Clear that says something like, every action you take is a vote for the person that that you wanna become. Yeah. And this is a direction that I wanna move toward. And so it's a practice that isn't always easy or often isn't easy, but it's very rewarding internally. Even if nobody reads it, even if nobody cares, it's first and foremost for me, as selfish as that might sound, but that's why I do it because it is uncomfortable. Because I'm like, yeah, this
0: feels it's, good. it's almost as if you're in there to uncover the story of your life, right? And even though it's uncomfortable to share with the internet or anyone who may judge, it's the best thing you could do for yourself.
1: I I think so. I mean, like, do you have the feeling where you sort of go back and you find something that you wrote years and years ago? That There's sort of this like time travel, right? Where you can reconnect with a younger version of yourself. And, you know, for me, yeah. like, when I do that, like some of the feelings come back and like these memories that I haven't thought about. And I love that aspect of being able to sort of like traverse space and time and like connect with different parts of who you are.
0: I don't I don't like to rewrite because every time I rewrite and reread, I don't like to reread because every time I read, I want to, I just want to run away and like hire an editor to like take care of my life. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> this past writing is needs some help, right? So. Even, even when I wrote in college, I was like, I'd rather rewrite everything again and then read it. So uh, there's a lot. I think it's really hard for me to distance the judgment and the process. I mean, it's, yeah. doing so is rewarding. Uh, and I mean, doing so by, by releasing the judgment is rewarding. But I think it's, it's very hard. And I don't know, when you are writing, when you're creating, when you're doing your work, Has you, have you ever heard any critical voices from you from like maybe your parental figure growing up? Like is that, is there any voice like that?
1: There are always critical voices in my head. And I don't know if it's me or a parent. I mean, I'm sure that it's sort of a mix of all of it. Like past people, you know, my life. I think, you know, to your point about sort of like rereading work I think part of what helps me is, yeah I'll reread stuff and be like, wow, I said that or that's what I was thinking. And I, it sort of um, prompts me to bring some acceptance and some compassion to say, that's how I was thinking and, and feeling when I was 15 or 18 or even 25. Um,
0: Does that mean you keep a journal?
1: I do, I do, right. Um, you know, because there's sort of a detachment of like, that doesn't have to be me now, that was yeah. me then. And it's really interesting to see which parts stick. Like, oh, I s- still believe that versus which parts are now different. There's like an evolution in that. And that's okay.
0: What was the story that you used to believe in maybe very uh, prevalently, but not anymore?
1: Oh yeah, man, I have a few examples. Let's see, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, I mean, so I grew up in sort of a very traditional, like, well, Hong Kong society culture where your options are, Doctor, lawyer, banker, or failure. (laughs) That (laughs) was the
0: the scope of your. Yeah,
1: that was the scope of your possible career choices. Yeah. And so I followed those paths. Like I got good grades, went to a school, and then you know, I started off in a job in consulting, where I learned a ton, and it was like very fun to travel. But I think some of the things that I'm learning now is that you know, there's so many gray areas. There's so many other options out there. And I think especially with the rise of a lot of these platforms and, like, the creator economy, um, it's not only easier, but more acceptable and even encouraged to pursue things that you're genuinely curious about. So this idea of sort of trying to fit into a, a, a mold, if you will, uh, compared to, hey, it's okay to be weird. And actually- How did you
0: make that leap? from following the expectation, being a consultant, and maybe engineer as well in the past, and turning on the light bulb and say, hey, I can be as weird as I can, as, as weird as I love to well, be. yeah,
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for all the leaping that I do, I would say that this one has been sort of a much more gradual, like breaking down of the old thinking, yeah. and slowly pieces of me changing to accept I can be different. So, I mean, like probably most people who listen to your podcast you know I I used to chase a lot of the you know overachiever type things right like promotions and like awards and all these things and you know part of what I found and that I also kind of see with a lot of people that I work with is you think you're going to be happy from the next big milestone but a it usually is that happiness or the fulfillment is like very fleeting Um, and it kind of just keeps you on this treadmill Right. And so then I was like, okay, so then what else is there? And so trying to kind of seek other forms to find fulfillment, meaning value in my life, that was sort of the larger compass, internal compass, that was like, there's something more, there's something different for you. And were you,
0: I, did you have to convince anyone around you, be it family members, parents, you know, partners, like, was there any convincing work to be done?
1: That's a great question. I actually think most of my family and friends have been supportive of my choices. I think for me, it was that the fellow co-workers and the communities that I was in prior, those have, I've, I've sort of felt the most resistance. Because right.
0: we, what did I say?
1: Well, they're like, what are you doing? Right. I mean, take anything, take skydiving, which granted is sort of a more risky activity, but <laughs> you know, I, I took a three-month um, break from my consulting work and that's actually what opened up the door, you know, for me to try skydiving. Mm. And I left that to go to sort of the, like I went to GoPro and I worked there for five years and helped people to build um, action cameras. And that was amazing. And I left that to to go work in K-12 education technology, which is much more mission driven, but I took a massive pay cut to do that. But I was like, this is what feels good. And then a few years ago, I left that to sort of start my own practice. And so with each of these moves, I feel like they're all sort of these small, maybe medium, steps toward trying to find what's more true for me and less about what's true based on societal or cultural norms.
0: And how did you cultivate the confidence to believe in yourself?
1: Hmm. (laughs) Well, um, I mean, I guess what comes to mind for me is it doesn't seem like a binary thing, like I didn't have it and then I had it. It's an ongoing process for me. And so every time that I jump out of a plane, every time that I make a decision that isn't on the traditional path, you still face those things, right? It's, it's like publishing every week. I don't expect to come to a point where I never have imposter syndrome, for example. I think of imposter syndrome as a sign, a signal that you're taking on some big challenges and some big ideas. And yeah, I can feel the butterflies in my stomach for this, right? Like that's a good sign. My so it dad- So like-
0: It's more like taking incremental steps, small or medium step, and then reframing those fear into a proof that you are alive, you are living your dream, you are taking on the challenges and pushing yourself, pushing the limits, right?
1: Yeah, I I think that that's one path. I think that, you know, for someone else, there could be a massive jump where they were in something to do with finance that was like more soul-sucking they said I'm gonna like you know I have a friend that did this and just left and sort of like became a surfer who sort of writes and like he makes content now he's loving it so I think the paths are different but I do love what you're saying about there's a muscle that we have or don't know that we have that we can build and it's the muscle of sort of moving away from from conformity and Mm -hmm. playing with this idea of like, what's authentic to us. And I think that for a lot of people, we don't know this You know this whole idea of like, find your passion. As a coach, it's kind of funny. I don't really believe in finding your passion as if the answer is sort of inside of you, you have to figure it out. But I believe in a world where we experiment and we, and we prototype and we try things, we learn and then we iterate.
0: When you coach, have you met any, or what is the most popular question asked by your client?
1: Of themselves or of me?
0: when they what did they bring to you
1: yeah i think there are two major themes one is fulfillment the other is confidence mm. the people that i work with inspire the crap out of me they're amazing and i every day i'm like holy i get to work with this kind of person right they're yeah. they're change makers they're business leaders they have managed teams way larger than i have they're, they're more successful they more educated than I have. And they're still looking for sort of that next level of growth, being more confident in in their own skin, as a leader, as a human being. So that's sort of one theme around like confidence, right? They're they're always shooting for more. And that's, I think like part of what has taught me that imposter syndrome is a constant thing that will kind of keep coming and then fulfillment because a lot of them have ascended to working at big fan companies or doing stuff that's like really cutting edge or like they've started their own companies. And they're, they're looking for something more than sort of traditional success, right? Mm. They've got money, they've got titles, accolades, but what's beyond that? How do they make an impact where they feel really significant in their lives matter, essentially?
0: And what is the key mindset shift that make them click and realize that, oh, wow, this is, this is what I want, or this is on the path towards what I want.
1: Yeah. That's a a good question. I mean, I think it's different for everybody, because those shifts are sort of relative to what all of the previous programming has been, right? So for some people, it's, I'm not enough, unless, or until, dot, 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 or it's, um, you know, something around uh, being more self-aware and recognizing that things that people were looking for externally The the shift has been giving themselves permission, some type of permission that they were looking for outside of themselves, and instead having it come from within themselves.
0: Right. So it sounds like one is to get over either cultural conditioning or just how they were made to think that they were not enough. And the other one is to give themselves permission to be who they want to be or to not knowing who they want to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love how you phrased that, right? This whole aspect of not knowing is something I see a lot, especially in CEOs who are like at the top of their team. And they're like, I'm expected to know everything as a CEO, because I define the strategy, the culture, all that stuff. And so one huge shift, uh, like now that you're mentioning it is, it's okay to not know. Yeah. That is, that has been a powerful one that I, you know, that I see a lot actually.
0: And how has that shift influenced the way they lead or lead their company or work with their their team?
1: Yeah, it's moved them from thinking they have to have all the answers to now being willing to ask questions. They Mm -hmm. lean on people, they ask for input. I mean, especially in this day and age, like, as we start to come out of the pandemic, right, almost nothing is certain. I mean, all the sort of plans we have long term, we're having to adapt and change. And so instead of saying, okay, I think this is the answer, like, let's move forward. It's what can we learn from sort of the hive mind of the team and from the markets? And so I think the strength is really in asking better questions, not in having answers.
0: Right. Right. And I think that's so much about what we do it's all about asking the question and nudge them to find your own answers. Since no one totally. knows themselves better than they do.
1: Yeah. That's part of why I love coaching. Like, yeah. I, cause I, I'm not expected. I, I don't have the answers on your life. I'm not an expert on you. You are. And so it's, it's amazing that that you know, as a coach, we can help people to sort of draw out their own wisdom and their own creativity. Um, and in fact, I think sometimes not having things like domain knowledge of their industry or their function can be a huge benefit because yeah. I get to ask dumb questions all day.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, paid to ask dumb questions. Yeah. Paid to ask
1: dumb questions.
0: <laughs> What's the biggest challenge? Uh, we talk about the 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 mindset changes, the shift the impact, but I am always curious to see what was the most challenging case you have ever come across?
1: So the way that I approach coaching is very holistically. You know, often people will come with a business challenge or like a leadership challenge, but I always treat people as a full human being. And so what that means is we work on everything from sort of self-management around sleep, fitness, nutrition, to their own mindset, to the relationship with their family, their loved ones, to the business, right? It's sort of this like concentric circles. So the one that comes to mind is um, I was working with a business leader. Is very accomplished, very good at what she did. And as we got more into her personal life details, I learned about a very complex romantic situation involving multiple people. And it completely took me by surprise because it was something sort of in a sense, out of what I you know, had expected. And um, I had to really sort of like check in with myself to be like, all right, like, how can I best show up for this person? How can I serve them the best? And for a lot of it, it was honestly being willing to just listen as deeply as I could to their words, beyond their words. And that space helped to her to process and unpack some of what she was feeling. Um, and that I think is one of the most underestimated skills not just in coaching, but life is just listening and giving people space to listen. And I'm saying that as someone who's been sort of like a project manager, problem solver for over a decade where I'm always say, like,
0: "Yeah, <laughs> it,
1: what's the answer, right? Let's plan this stuff out. And so to sort of have this more open space where we're not trying to get anywhere, let's just try to like reflect, explore, learn and then create, like what's the outcome that you wanna create here and start to work and sort of use that. Um, that's something that comes to mind for me.
0: It sounds like it's about letting go the agenda of wanting to help almost, right? Wanting, not wanting to find a solution, but really being there just with her, uh, be, be that presence, listening, anything, but really making her feel understood and staying with her until she finds the answer.
1: Yeah, it's a great paradox, right? Because as a, as a coach, or I would say, even as a service provider, you're like, how can I add value? How can I, you know, how can I deliver value for this person so that this is useful for them right, in some way? And letting go of having to get somewhere or to fix their problem. What I found in my limited experience is if you trust that, trust the process or trust the relationship or trust something greater, inevitably the conversation will always go where it needs to go for that person. I don't know if that's always true, but that's what I believe so far.
0: And that belief seems to work out.
1: It seems to be working out. Yeah. That's what people say,
0: at least. (laughs) Yeah, I I love it. And how much of that, how much of this way of coaching is similar or contrary to the way you were raised? Wow. Wow.
1: What a question. I think in a lot of ways, it's very different. So in this conversation, we've talked about you know, like going from um, sort of a very hustle grind for success approach to more of an allowing and like seeing what's here kind of approach.
0: And when we, you say hustle grind, you meant growing up in Hong Kong, going to all the com- like school competition and, and, and grades, yeah. right?
1: Right, it's the idea of like working really hard and like overachieving. And, you know, like as a project manager for that long, it's always like milestones and planning and risk management. Right. And it's not that those things aren't helpful, but just in terms of a style of coaching, there's sort of a much more free form, free flowy type of organicness that complements a more structured approach.
0: Right. It's, it's almost as if you were raised under the structure, you learn to optimize for, for certain goals and metrics. Yes. But then in coaching, you're you either you learned or you're taught to throw away them all right? and, and embrace a different set of game.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, Another thing that comes to mind is we tend to over rotate, I think, on very tangible goals and metrics, because those are things you can see and measure, whether it's revenue, market share, um, um, things like retention. And those are still really important to business. But I think more and more, more research is happening um, to sort of how do we look at, measure, quantify some of the intangible things? And how do we actually put more focus on some of those? I like read this thing the other day that was like, 50% of your job is doing your job, The other 50% is managing relationships, Yeah, but we give so little weight to managing. Oh, that's only for managers. No, everybody needs to learn those things. And there are multiple paths to do that. But I think, especially in this day and age, this idea of how do we collaborate better, more effectively? How do we treat each other as human beings? How do we build trust, empathy? How do we leave with vulnerability? These are the areas that I'm really fascinated by that I think and I'm seeing in research, actually lead to greater profit, greater productivity. Because they um, basically the allow
0: everyone to be more human and being more human is being understood and being understood is connection and connection as collaboration, right? So yeah. I
1: love it. Yeah.
0: And, and how is that even though they were not, you were not manager, they were not manager, you can still embrace them, right? So if say someone who is currently building a product on their own, maybe they don't have a team yet, or they were like one of a really big team, how can they apply one or two practical skills to their work?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I think this idea of leader or manager that comes from a title is sort of a big misnomer, right? I believe that everyone is their own leader. I mean, you're living your own life. And so that's sort of the first piece is to realize that instead of sort of being like a victim of what's happening to you, take responsibility for you create a, a lot of your world and so then the next step is then you also have a lot of um, control in terms of how you respond to situations, right? So like I love, I think it was Stephen Covey who said the word responsibility is response ability or the ability to respond. So yeah. there's, there's an ex- external stimulus and then there's a gap before you just react. How do you more thoughtfully, mindfully respond to that in a way that I think is sort of like a win-win for other people? Mm. so to get back to your question, you know, how can you, and I think this is what you asked, right? Like how yeah. do you implement some kind of actionable thing as, as a solo founder or as someone found founder manager? I mean, I think even as a solo founder, we have relationships with other people, our customers, our investors, if we have any, you know, our advisors. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities to cultivate, you know, I would say positive sum human relationships. And I think on a personal level, Practicing your own ability to be more emotionally vulnerable is a big way to learning about yourself, to building trust, and to accepting more of who you are holistically instead of just having this, like, I don't know, professional persona, right? Like, how do you honor all of these parts of yourself that maybe you hid or, like, resisted before because you were ashamed? I mean, I'm kind of going, like, a little bit off, off track here, but um, I think practicing those skills can be found in any relationship. These skills can be honed and worked on and developed.
0: So in a case where a founder is going to raise their Series two, Series A, how could he or she integrate that into, into that fundraising or the job?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I would say, how much do you know about your investors and the people that you're pitching to, right? how can you sort of research or learn more about them more than just their their portfolio? Um, Because I think that under the surface, they're all humans too, right? And so that I think can help you to sort of guide the presentation or talk about like what's valuable. Because I think at the end of the day, like a lot of it is for people who wanna invest in in people. Yeah. um, I would say.
0: So in some sense, I think what you said were no matter who you are, you could always own and take responsibility for the situation, the product the team, right? No matter where you are, what, at what level. And the other one is really to pause before you want to intuitively react to something you observe. You could think and see whether that's coming from resourceful state where you were actually being mindful, uh, abundant like, and all that. And then uh, seeing every people as really like human that you want to build good connections with because that will take you really far.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a great summary.
0: And the other interesting question I would always get is, have you ever had a magic trick that didn't play out well? Like, you know, people see that not that's not magic anymore. <laughs> I'm curious.
1: Oh yeah, oh, I totally bombed. I had a big fail. Um, I was doing a school performance in front of 400 people in high school.
0: And knowing what you know now about <laughs> vulnerability, you know what you said <laughs> uh, yeah. what would you do differently
1: it, for that for yeah. the magic thing yeah <laughs> oh man um honestly nothing um I I can't share what happened that led to that bad result
0: right but it to. was
1: out of it was out of our control
0: yeah and
1: it was something where we had planned it as well as we could have
0: <laughs> right because i that's tend to be like very life thorough. in general like right? life. yeah,
1: yeah. You, you plan as well as you can and then plans change and so i don't know if i would have done anything differently i i think i was i was like this is gonna look awesome and in practice it did and then you know come performance time it bumped and i was like well that's life sometimes and you just gotta yeah. with it and move on <laughs> yeah yeah
0: that's that's refreshing uh and i think it's it's interesting and the reason i asked the that's sort of a way of living, right? We can prepare every single thing in practice, but there will always be something that's out of your control, throw you off track, and make you feel like, I don't know, like you fell, right? So how did that ever affect you, your performance, or did that just kind of like, you know, pass by as as you as you move on to the next one?
1: <laughs> I mean, sure. I was I was sort of like distraught <laughs> like for a few days and I was trying to figure out And then eventually we sort of found out, you know, what happened, but I mean, you know, to your point, we can make as many plans as we want and things, they're always going to be surprises. And so I think how it's affected me is as, as a PM or sort of as a Leland trying to build in buffer for surprises, having a plan, right? Like, you know, you try to like do the best you can, but also be flexible Um, because things, things do change and I guess not to be too attached to certain outcomes is also sort of a big lesson for me because we don't always know if there's a change or a switch or some surprise that it's always going to be negative. Sometimes like a deviation from the plan turns out to be a positive thing, like in the long run. So how do we be more open to changes that are unexpected and, and be able to sort of flow with them instead of, Oh, it's a change. I'm going to tense up and sort of, you know, this is a setback. It might look like a setback on the surface, but who knows? There might be some door or multiple doors that open when one closes. And so, you know, try to look for those.
0: Sometimes learning to let go of control is the best things you could do for your life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think that planning is a useful activity, but I think it was Churchill who said, planning is everything, but plans are nothing. Just in the sense of the process is helpful. Because it helps you to kind of think about things. Um, but the actual plans, you can be sure that they're going to change. And I just want to mention, like, yeah. mention something about skydiving, which I think is sort of another kind of misconception is people are like, dude, you, you know, is it sort of this like adrenaline fix <laughs> that you have to get every time you go? And the yeah. truth is at first, yeah, there's like a lot of adrenaline, but it um, actually now is one of the most calming, peaceful, even meditative things. Because it's one of those things where it brings you into the present moment. You don't have time to think about work or family, anything else, right? Like when that airplane door opens, you're there and you have to be there. And so when you talk to artists or surfers or, you know, many people have like different activities that can can sort of like bring us into that moment. Um, I just wanted to mention that that is a big part of, of why I
0: love it. It's almost as if that's the most present you have ever been in your life since <laughs> you couldn't do, you really couldn't do anything else um, yeah. besides falling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you need know, 100% guess, exactly. focus on like, yeah. just trying to touch your friend's hand, right? When you're falling at 180 miles an hour.
0: Right. And it, it's, it's so interesting because I feel like we could very much just apply that focus and that process to anything we do. But we sometimes just allow distraction to to get in the way and we we let go of what it's interesting we let go of uh what could be even better uh instead of just enjoying the moment by moment
1: yeah i I love how you phrase that we allow ourselves to get distracted because i think it's true i think that they're you know we we sort of give in or like give up our control to these things and yeah it's super addictive right that's how they're engineered it's literally how they're designed um, but I think the more that we can sort of like reclaim some of our, our energy, our time and our concentration focus to focus a little bit more on what really matters to us. I think that's sort of one of the big games in life because time is limited and, and like everything is is limited and that's okay. It's sort of like the natural uh, you know way of things. Yeah. Um, but that's, I think a lot of what I do and possibly also what you do in terms of shifting people over to what really matters to you and how do you spend more of your energy and time on those things.
0: Every single time. And you know, after, uh, before we wrap up, I just want to give you uh, and give our audience a chance to learn more about what is the best way to learn about your work, to stay connected and yeah, tell us now.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say just my website. So if you go to lelandfranklin.com, you can find my like LinkedIn or my Twitter on there. Uh, and I would love to chat with anyone who wants to chat. And, know, has found any of this interesting.
0: Yeah, and we'll put the link in the podcast description, so just go down there, and you can see Leland's website to learn more about his work, his writing, and everything he does.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been a blast, Charlene.
0: This is my honor, and I am so glad to just talk about everything from life to all the cool things you have done that I don't even know how to do, <laughs> or I don't have the guts to do yet. Uh, for but, but it sounds like it's really, really, really fascinating. That I'm kind yeah. to try. Yeah,
1: I love the yet. And if you ever ever want to, uh, you know, try skydiving, you have an open open invitation. I'm happy to, you know, happy to take you.
0: I will take up that offer, and I will let you know. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Leland. You. Uh, such a pleasure. And stay well.
1: Thanks a lot. You too.